0: We're in a series in First Peter, where walking through this letter this summer, the focus is Peter as a teacher, pastor, bishop over many uh, churches, he's speaking to the saints, most particularly found in Rome. But in the opening passage, we read that they have been scattered, they're scattered all over the known world at this time. And Peter writes to them in this letter to be hopeful in the life that they're facing in a culture that is not Christian, nor friendly to Christians. And this morning, he is writing to them to be hopeful in their steadfastness when they face unjust suffering. And so the theme of 1 Peter is to be steadfast to remain faithful in the face of overwhelming temptation. And he's giving us the gospel throughout 1 Peter that armed with the good news that we are not completely citizens of this world, but we are aliens, exiles. We are resident aliens because we are God's people. And yet, we're also not just tourists, but we, we do serve in the culture that we live in. We, we're not a part of what Francis Schaeffer called the, the, the Christian ghetto. We've, we've not isolated ourselves from the culture. But like Saul tonight, we're in the culture. So now Peter is writing to them this morning, as John just read, about how to face when you're in the culture, when you're immersed in the culture, the family, and the neighborhood, and the workplace, and you face the trial because of your faith and because of your allegiance and because of being a resident alien and because if you're a citizen of heaven, because you're God's people, what should your conduct look like in the face of unjust mm-hmm. suffering? If you've got a highlighter or a pen, I want you to highlight in your Bible or on the, the scripture uh, on the rear of the outline or on the side of the outline, verse 21. That's the focus this morning is I want to cover as much as I can as we're trying to try walk through 1 Peter verse by verse. Uh, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to cover uh, every verse. We're going to do it around the theme of verse 21. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way in his paraphrase This is the kind of life that you've been invited into, the kind of life that Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so that you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. The Christian is called to face unjust suffering in the same manner that Christ's life modeled. Christ faced unjust suffering and it was no mere accident, as we're going to see in a moment, but it was his calling. And he suffered unjustly for us and in our place. And Peter is coming to this congregation, and he's saying, copy Christ. You are called to face suffering differently than those around you. And as a Christian, you are called to suffer like Christ was called to suffer, so copy Him. You are called to copy Christ. I want to show you three things this morning. I want to show you the context that Peter and now us are operating in as far as unjust suffering. Then I want to show you that we indeed are called from the Scriptures. It should come as no surprise when we suffer unjustly. When that internal, personal bill of rights that I have, when I've been wrong or when I've been injured, the problem is, is that I want justice. And made in God's image, there's something in me that says justice must be rendered. But that tension too often is resolved by either lashing out bringing justice in my own time and in my own way, or plotting revenge, or maybe just withdrawing and isolating myself, just quitting and leaving. Peter says different. He says that in the context of our suffering, we, like Christ, are called to model how we can face suffering and injustice and then lastly, I want you to see where does the power, where does the power come from to face unjust suffering? What's, what's my capacity? Right now I feel like I could take that much unjust suffering. But what if I want to increase my capacity to rise to Peter's call so that I can face more and more suffering as it comes in a right manner? Let's look at the scriptures. Verse 13. He's subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, some of you right away are going to say, man, I don't like a government. I don't like my boss over me. Maybe the institution that I'm operating in is the HOA community uh, that I'm in. I don't like a lot of those things. And I, I just stick it to the man every chance I get to. And I'm just, I just tell him, no, if it doesn't. Fit. God is saying that there are institutions that are over us that are by His design and in accordance with His plan that are not Christian-led. They're not even administered for the glory of God except they are a design for order and for government. But no, He never tells us to submit and surrender to sin. We are never commanded to compromise. We're never commanded by God to obey an organization if it's identified as sin. But if we find ourselves in a government, disagree with the policy of elected officials... That has come down to us, we may indeed suffer for that. But Peter would say, honor the emperor, honor the president, honor the CEO, honor the boss. He says here twice, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or even to lower down the scale governors. He doesn't say just Republicans, he doesn't say just Democrats. He says, those that are in authority over us, we may find ourselves in that context. Look at then and now. Then, Peter was talking to a congregation. He was talking to Christians. This letter, they wouldn't, it, it simply wouldn't be read to one congregation, but it would be read, copied, then sent on to other congregations. And these congregations, wherever they were found, these Christians found themselves as a minority. They were misunderstood. They were accused of cannibalism because it was reported that they ate the blood and body of the Lord. And that the Lord long since deceased, they had to get a fresh sacrifice as they celebrated each week. It was reported that they practiced incest because they celebrated something called the love feast, the agape feast, as they came together, would be like our congregation dinners today. And that, that that drinking and that eating would just lead to all sorts of excess and, and orgies. They were accused of, of breaking family relations because one person in the family would follow Christ and the others would not. They were also accused of disrupting commerce because... They no longer serviced the idol makers, the silversmiths that made the shrines or the idols. Their brother were caused, uh, said to disrupt uh, slave and master relationships. As they gave the slave upon his conversion or her conversion, now had human work, human value and dignity. But they were never accused of immorality. Oh, there were suspicions, but there was never any evidence of immorality. But they were a minority. Where are you a minority? Is it in your workplace? For most, that is true. You may find yourself that you're the only Christian to your knowledge at this time. Some of you would say, it's my neighborhood. Others would say, it's my school, or the particular class that I'm in right now. Some might say it's the club or another organization that I'm a part of. And sadly, some they say, I'm a minority in my family, in my extended family. I'm the only Christian, or only one of two. Peter would say, in that context, you're, you can expect unjust suffering. You can expect Don't be taken by surprise. You can expect to be misunderstood. Secondly, Nero was the emperor. Nero, today, in history, would be the second day of the fire that burned Rome almost to the ground. Yesterday, in history, in 1864, Nero set the fires in Rome in order to burn down Rome and rebuild it in his own image. At one point, about the third or fourth day, they had the fire subdued and almost extinguished, and Nero sent out arsonists to reignite the fires. Well, people understood enough to know that it was Nero's hand in this. Realizing this, Nero had to have a state there. And so he brain shifted to the Christian. And the Christians began to be, at that point, extremely persecuted. One example was that Nero, to make an example of these bad Christians that he blamed for burning down people's lives and burning down their businesses and their homes, he had a hundred of them impaled on huge crucifixes. Pitch or tar was poured over them. And then they were placed in his garden and for a garden party that he would have in the evenings, he would light these human torches to give light as they would party beneath these human glowing lamps. Just one example. They were, Hebrews 11 talks about people that were sewn into animal skins and during the gladiatorial games were thrown out to the beast for fun or appeasement. This is the context that Peter was talking to about suffering. What about you? I think one of the biggest injuries that I have on a regular basis is where I feel like somebody is blaming me for something I didn't do. Like the first sin, when sin first entered the world, Adam, what'd you do? She gave me the apple. Eve, what'd you do? That slimy snake. He made me do it. And so, blame shift people. We find ourselves as Christians frequently on the receiving end of the blame though we were not on the giving end of the sin or the conduct or behavior. What do you do with that? How do you handle that? Peter says, when you are unjustly blamed. Look in verse 18. Sir, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter says, you still show respect. You don't defend yourself as if you do not have a defender. You do not have to go and gossip about that person behind their back in order to to slay them, and to get back to it says, you receive even that unjust behavior, that shifting of the blame, as Christ did. He said in verse 22, he committed no sin. That's what I feel like when somebody blame shifts on me. I haven't committed a sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's what Peter is saying here. Christ is our great example. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. There were over 60 million slaves in Rome. In fact, and I can't go off on a side road here, but slavery in Rome in no way compared to slavery in America that we are so familiar with. Slavery in Rome, the slaves, there was a whole uh, uh, area of law that applied to slaves alone. Slaves did all the work. No free person worked at all. There were interior household slaves, many of them that had become a member of the family. Given an opportunity, they could purchase their freedom, but given an opportunity, Many of them chose not to. Some would marry into the family. Slaves were not only household servants, but they were doctors. They were shipbuilders. They couldn't hold public office, though, because they were considered inferior. They were considered basically as having the same soul and value of an animal except they could talk. What do you feel that you're treated as an inferior. Oh, they're, they're a Christian. You know, they're just, they don't think for themselves. They just, you know what, that's a goody two-shoe over there. They're not one of us. Or, where are you treated like a slave, just a, a drone, that you're suffering unjustly because of, you're treated as if you're an inferior holy instead of even a here, And it could be in relationships. Where are you feeling like you're treated as an inferior? The contacts then can be very similar to the contacts now. Going on, Jesus Christ said in, verse, in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, And this is not the complete text. Matthew 24, Jesus Christ told his disciples that then, now this is following his crucifixion, following his resurrection, following his leaving them to go to heaven. He says, over time, you can expect that they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. And he says the reason that this gospel is being proclaimed is because we don't react as the world reacts when we face suffering and its injustice. It's not that we're weak, it's that we're strong. And Peter admonishes us, to draw on that source of strength that we possess so that our conduct is different toward the emperor, toward those around us. Our conduct is different in the situation that we find ourselves in the workplace. We're not grousers. We're not whiners. We're not resentful. We're not filled with self-pity. We're not despairing. We're not rebellious. People, as if we have a, a different one over us that we can entrust our life situation with. That He who judges all will judge us and judge all of the situations that we find ourselves in. That we, like Christ, in the midst of suffering, can trust this God with justice on our behalf. No, it may not be a It could be. But he knows. There is not one tear that you shed that God's not aware of. There is not one pain that you bear. There's not one thing you've been accused of that you're, that you're not guilty of. There's not one injury, personal injury or mistreatment because of your faith that God is not aware of. And here it says that this God in verse 19 who... who sees us that we, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, that while we're enduring these sorrows, God looks at us and he says, I'm proud. I see the faith. I see that you're following Christ, even as he was willing to submit to his call to suffer. I'm not going to be able to Cover all the scriptures here, but in Matthew 26, we see that Jesus Christ was called to suffer over and over again in Matthew 26, which is a, a tremendous passage on the passion of Christ. But in Matthew 26, Jesus Christ says, It's no surprise that I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be betrayed. It's no surprise that I am going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be falsely tried. People are going to say that I did things that I did not do. They are going to blame shift me for a number of things. I'm going to be accused of things that I did not do. I'm going to be physically beaten within an inch of of my life. And then I'm going to be, after falsely tried, I'm going to be crucified all this is a part of my calling. It's a part of my destiny. I was called to do this. And then, Peter, as Christ had done earlier in Matthew 24, he reminds us that that's our calling too. Can you imagine what it was like for Peter? Peter's mind shift, Peter's transformation of thinking, In Matthew 16, verse 22, that's where we have Peter, his famous, no, Jesus Christ. You do not have to go to Jerusalem. In fact, if you're saying that they're going to seize you and you're going to be falsely tried and you're going to be crucified, no, let's just not go to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ said, get behind me, and say, likening that as a temptation to avoid the call to suffer. As we saw during the 40 days in the wilderness, over and over again, Satan would say, hey, you don't have to die. I can make you, I can give you the earth now without the cross, without suffering. But Christ's whole life was said to come and to suffer and in order to suffer, in order to win us as God's people. To pay the price for our sin. It's called the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is his death on the cross on our behalf. It settled God's justice. The active obedience of Christ is whereby every action he followed God, every action he followed God's call, every action in his life he obeyed submitted over and over again. And Peter is saying to us, you too, be steadfast in your submission to this God who sees and who judges rightly. You are His people. You are His people now. Now follow when you are accused falsely. Follow Christ. Peter then shifts in 1 Peter here, 21 that I've had you to look at, he shifts he says, We're called to copy Christ. And then in 1 Peter 4:13, he goes to the next level where he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This morning, the word there in verse 21 where it says "follow Christ's example," the word there is "upo grammas." Hupo grammas, and it means to write or to, to copy from the teacher. But the wording is rather unusual, and it's easier to show you than to try to define further. So I have an imprint. So this is my pattern. This is my master. I lay my paper over it. And then. Okay, you can't see what it is in the back row. Can you see what that is in the front row? It's a palmetto This is Christ, not the extra. This is Christ. This is His life. This is the copy made of Christ. My life This crayon, is suffering. No other way around it. If you would, if you would experience life in Christ you're called to imitate Christ. And we're not called to imitate Christ simply in our own image. There's a a new book written called The Original Jesus. And on The Original Jesus, George Terrell lists a number of Jesuses that we've made in our own image. There's Guru Jesus, who is just one of the many paths to enlightenment. There's Dr. Phil Jesus, who is just Jesus who gives helpful hardware hints. There's the red letter Jesus, you know, not the Old Testament God who Peter says we're to fear God, meaning that we're to revere him, respect him. He's not a tame Jesus. There's the best friend Jesus. Jesus is my, you know, best friend there's the left-wing Jesus, who he's all about redistributing wealth and, and serving the poor. We do well to serve the poor, but the left-wing Jesus, it seems that he's very liberal. Then here's one that's close to my heart, Braveheart Jesus. You know, that, he's kind of he kind of looks in my mind like the brawny towel paper towel guy. You know, he's kind of brawny. He's tough, you know. He's a fighter. He's rugged, Jesus. He's a real man's Jesus. But he doesn't weep. And he doesn't have a breaking heart. He doesn't really have any emotion. There's the American Jesus. Very, very popular. Very, very popular. I'm going to say something. So I'm going on somebody's toes. Bed, but he's kind of the. You'll hear a lot about the American Jesus on talk radio. You know, he's Republican. He's got a big flag the believe Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, it's all about the rules. It's all about keeping the rules. And then, here's one that's emerging these days, the post-church Jesus. The post-church Jesus saying, you know, the church is old and dead and decline and so I just have, I don't go to church anymore. And I don't affiliate with any community of believers. It's just kind of me and Jesus, wherever we Go. Peter tells us that if we're going to experience the ability, the power, the capacity to suffer unjustly, we're going to have to have a different Jesus on our mind. I believe that Peter, in writing, because he quotes, he cites Isaiah 53 in so many words at least four times here. But I believe that, that he had in his mind both Isaiah 53 and I believe that he had in his mind Matthew 26. And I would encourage you to write those down or make a notation because I want you to look at those things, particularly those passages and those verses, when you face suffering unjustly. In fact, because we are going to face personal injuries and challenges as frequent as every day, you should practice verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. What's your sorrow right now? What's your sorrow right now? You got it? Are you mindful of God in relation to that sorrow? You cannot endure sorrow. Christ on the way, if we're not mindful of God. And Peter is saying to Christians, I don't want you to be mindless, but I want you to be mindful of God. And that will give you the capacity to endure. What are we being mindful of? Is it God's creation? Is it God's work of providence? Is it answer your prayer? There's a lot to be mindful of, but I believe in this passage he's saying that when you suffer, when you suffer life unfairness. I don't want this in my life. It's frustrating. I feel powerless. I don't want this. this when you're facing those sorrows, be mindful of how Christ, a man very familiar with sorrows, how he faced it, mindful of God. And this Christ that you're mindful of, mindful of God, mindful of how Christ they suffer It's not the bread curl, hair flowing, Jesus Christ and robe and all clean. It's a man severely abused and suffered. Severely abused. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 5. I think we've got this up. Notice that, that here, Peter is focusing on Christ's while he is still alive, the physical suffering. He is he's got this in mind when he says in verse twenty three that he was revived. In verse twenty four, he uses the penal language, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. And by his wounds we've been healed. Wounded, crushed upon him, chastisement, him. That means he's beaten. His strikes. What would it? What would it do? Like the author in the Valley Vision prayer said, "Lord, Thou hast blessed me to see my heart in all of Your bleeding wounds. What will it do in the face of?" your greatest trial and suffering, to see that stripe, that welt, that lash that Jesus took for you. Frankly, I will tell you for me that Jesus Christ in his most pristine state, when I have that image of Christ, when I have a pristine Christ sitting in, Children are at his feet and he's ducking in his lap and he's touching them. That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be mindful of. It's a wonderful thing to come to mind. But in the face of my most severe sorrow, what comes to mind is a thin, pulpy-faced, blood-drenched man. He's not tame. In fact, if he anything, he's a little scary because he is standing there and I know him to be completely innocent. But he stands in and he says, I am willing to be, I am willing to die and I will die for you. Now, when you face some of the suffering in this life unjustly from others, that you can endure in the face of, I'm not talking about injustice and I'm not talking about sin but to say would you trust me with justice rather than taking it in your hands even as Christ surrendered and steadfastly submitted his life, his case into the Father's hands, would you trust your sorrow your suffering, even as Christ did would you entrust it in Christ's hands He understands something. He knows. And he's not going to give you a stoic answer to get tough. He's going to give you an answer to say, just as it says here, just as Christ entrusted, you, that means hand over, hands it to God, that you can, by faith, trust God. He knows the sorrow you face. You can trust him with justice. You can trust him to have a reasonable plan for that, in my life, and in his kingdom. In time, if you're a student of history, Rome became a Christian nation. And it was based on the conduct of the Christians, most particularly in the way that they handled suffering and personal injury because they gave over to God for justice. rather that they take those matters. This Morning, we have a table. It is said that you can be mindful of God as you endure know suffering. That you can see here again where Christ was crushed. You can visually see, and then we can say to ourselves, I'm going to be a copy of this image that is broken on my Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Peter moved from a man who said no to suffering to one who could tell others there will come a point where we can even rejoice in suffering, the situations that God has placed us in as we endure, even with laughter, to say, Lord, you have placed this sorrow in my life and it is heavy but I can entrust it to you. I can entrust it to you to have a purpose. I can entrust it to you to bring justice. I can entrust you to reward. Father, you are healing me even in these things. And I am growing more and more to have the power to face unjust suffering even as I grow to see Christ born suffering, rejoicing, glad to suffer, that he might command his people. To this end we pray in Christ's name.